Welcome to Fast Asleep. You may be here for a good night's sleep, but you're going to get it tonight with, again, a very exceptional story. These next three episodes are for all of us, of course, but especially for our Scottish listeners. True, we only do exceptional stories. So, we again bring you something from the very Scottish Robert Louis Stevenson. And no, 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 it's not Jekyll and Hyde. But if you haven't seen Frederick March in the movie that's probably close to 100 years old now, do it. I saw it about a month ago again. It is so good. And it's kind of funny to think the same author who gives us Jekyll and Hyde also brought us A Child's Garden of Verses. Well, this tale is of a poet involved in a murder of a friend on a wintry night. Well, it's winter right now, so let's tuck in, everybody, and enjoy a lodging for the night. It was late in November. 1456, the snow fell over Paris with rigorous, relentless persistence. Sometimes the wind made a sally and scattered it in flying vortices. Sometimes there was a lull and flake after flake descended out of the black night air, silent, circuitous, interminable. To poor people, looking up under moist eyebrows, it seemed a wonder where it all came from. Master Francis Villon had propounded an alternative that afternoon at a tavern window. Was it only pagan Jupiter plucking geese upon Olympus? He was a poet, remember. Or were the holy angels molting? He was only a poor master of arts, he went on. And as the question somewhat touched upon divinity, he durst not venture to conclude. A silly old priest from Montargis, who was among the company, treated the young rascal to a bottle of wine in honor of the jest and grimaces with which it was accompanied and swore on his own white beard that he had been just such another irreverent dog when he was Villon's age. The air was raw and pointed, but not not far below freezing, and the flakes were large, damp, and adhesive. The whole city was sheeted up. An army might have marched from end to end and not a footfall given the alarm. If there were any belated birds in heaven, well, they saw the island like a large white patch and the bridges like slim white spars on the black ground of the river. High up overhead, 
the snow settled among the tracery of the cathedral towers. Many a niche was drifted full. Many a statue wore a long white bonnet on its grotesque or sainted head. The gargoyles had been transformed into great false noses drooping toward the point. The crockets were like upright pillows swollen on one side. In the intervals of the wind, there was a dull sound dripping about the precincts of the church. The cemetery of Saint-Jean had taken its own share of the snow. All the graves were decently covered. Tall white housetops stood around in grave array. Worthy burghers were long ago in bed, be nightcapped like their domiciles. There was no light, no light in all the neighborhood. But, oh, a little peep from a lamp that's hung swinging in the church choir and tossed the shadows to and fro in time to its oscillations. The clock was hard on ten when the patrol went by with halberds, spear, axe, combos, and a lantern beating their hands. And they saw nothing suspicious about the cemetery of Saint-Jean. And yet there was a small house backed up against the cemetery wall, which was still awake and awake to evil purpose in that snoring district. There was not much to betray it from without, only a stream of warm vapor from the chimney top, a patch where the snow melted on the roof, and a few half-obliterated footprints at the door. But within, behind the shuttered windows, Master Francis Villon, the poet, and some of the thievish crew with whom he consorted were keeping the night alive and passing round the bottle. A great pile of living embers diffused a strong and ruddy glow from the arched chimney. And before this straddled Dom Nicholas, the Picardy monk, monk, with his skirts picked up and his fat legs bared to the comfortable warmth. His dilated shadow cut the room in half, and the firelight only escaped on either side of his broad person and in a little pool between his outspread feet. His face had the beery, bruised appearance of the continual drinkers. It was covered with a network of congested veins, purple, in ordinary circumstances, but now pale violet, for even, even with his back to the fire, the cold pinched him on the other side. His cowl had half fallen back and made a strange excrescence on either side of his bull neck. So he straddled, grumbling, and cut the room in half with the shadow of his portly frame. On the right, Villon and Guy Tabary were huddled together over a scrap of parchment. 
Villon was making a ballade, a poem, which he was to call the ballade of roast fish. <laughs> and Tabary sputtering admiration at his shoulder. Now the poet was a rag of a man, dark, little, and lean, with hollow cheeks and thin black locks. He carried his four and twenty years with feverish animation. Greed had made folds about his eyes. Evil smiles had puckered his mouth. The wolf and pig struggled together in his face. It was an eloquent, sharp, ugly, earthly countenance. His hands were small and prehensile, with fingers knotted like a cord, and they were continually flickering in front of him in violent and expressive pantomime. As for Tabary, abroad complacent, admiring imbecility breathed from his squashed nose and slobbering lips. He had become a thief, well, just as he might have become the most decent of Burgesses by the imperious chance that rules the lives of human geese and human donkeys. Now at the monk's other hand, Montigny and Tevena Pensete played a game of chance. About the first, there clung some flavor of good birth and training as about a fallen angel. Something long, lithe, and courtly in the person, something aquiline and darkling in the face. Tevenel, poor soul, was in great feather. Well, he had done a good stroke of knavery that afternoon in the Faubourg Saint-Jacques, and all night he had been gaining from Montigny. Mm -hmm. A flat smile illuminated his face. His bald head shone rosily in a garland of red curls. Mm. His little protuberant stomach shook with silent chucklings as he swept in his gains. Doubles or quits, said Devenel. Montigny nodded grimly. <clears throat> Some may prefer to dine in state, wrote Villon, on bread and cheese on silver plate. Or, uh, or, uh, help me out, Guido, Tabary giggled. Or parsley on a golden dish, scribbled the poet. The wind was freshening without. It drove the snow before it and sometimes raised its voice in a victorious whoop and made sepulchral grumblings in the chimney. The cold was growing sharper as the night went on. Villon, protruding his lips, imitated the gust with something between a whistle and a groan. It was an eerie, uncomfortable talent of the poet's, much detested by the Picardy monk. Can't you hear it rattle in the gibbet? Gallows, said Villon. They are all dancing the devil's jig on nothing up there. 
You may dance, my gallants. You'll be none the warmer. Oof, oof, what a gust. Down went somebody just now. A meddler the fewer on the three-legged meddler tree. I say, Dom Nicholas, it'll be cold tonight at the Saint-Denis Road, he asked. Dom Nicholas winked both his big eyes and seemed to choke upon his Adam's apple. Montfaucon, the great grisly Paris gibbet, stood hard by the Saint-Denis Road, and the pleasantry touched him on the raw. As for Tattery, he laughed immoderately over the meddlers. He had never heard anything more light-hearted, and he held his sides and crowed. Fion fetched him a fillip, a blow, on the nose, which turned his mirth into an attack of coughing. Oh, stop that row, said Fion, and think of rhymes to fish. Doubles or quits, said Montigny doggedly. With all my heart, quoth Tevenot. Is there any more in that bottle? asked the monk. Open another, said Villon. How do you ever to hope to fill that big hogshead, your body, with little things like bottles? And how do you expect to get to heaven? How many angels do you fancy can be spared to carry up a single monk from Picardy? <laughs> or do you think yourself another Elias, and they will send you the coach? Omnibus impossible, replied the monk as he filled his glass. Tabary was in ecstasies, and Fion filliped his nose again. Laugh at my jokes if you like, he said, and Fion made a face at him. Think of rhymes to fish, he said. What have you to do with Latin? You'll wish you knew none of it at the great assize when the devil calls for Guido Tabary, clericus, the devil with the humpback and red-hot fingernails. Ooh, talking of the devil, he added in a whisper. Look at Montigny. All three peered covertly at the gamester. He did not seem to be enjoying his luck. His mouth was a little to a side, one nostril nearly shut, and the other much inflated. The black dog was on his back, as people say in that terrifying nursery metaphor, and he breathed hard under the gruesome burden. Oh, he looks as if he could knife him, whispered Tabary with round eyes. The monk shuddered and turned his face and spread his open hands to the red embers. Oh, it was the cold that thus affected Dom Nicholas, and not any excess of moral sensibility. Come now, said Villon, about this ballade. Now, <clears throat> how does it run so far? And beating time with his hand, he read it aloud to Tabary. They were interrupted, though at the fourth rhyme by a brief and fatal movement among the gamesters. The round was completed, and Tevenot was just opening his mouth to claim another victory 
when Montigny leaped up swift as an adder and stabbed him to the heart. The blow took effect before he had time to utter a cry, before he had time to move. Now, a tremor or two convulsed his frame. His hands opened and shut. His heels rattled on the floor. And then his head rolled backward over one shoulder with eyes wide open. And Devenant, Pensete's spirit, had returned to him who made it. Everyone sprang to his feet, but the business was over in two twos. The four living fellows looked at each other in rather a ghastly fashion. The dead man, contemplating a corner of the roof with a singular and ugly leer. My God, said Tabary, and he began to pray in Latin. Vion broke out in hysterical laughter. He came a step forward and ducked a ridiculous bow at Tevenant and laughed still louder. And then he sat down suddenly, all of a heap, upon a stool, and continued laughing bitterly, as though he would shake himself to pieces. Montigny recovered his composure first. Mm, let's see what he has about him, he remarked, and he picked the dead man's pockets with a practiced hand and divided the money into four equal portions on the table. There's for you, he said. The monk received his share with a deep sigh and a stealthy single glance at the dead Tevenant, who was beginning to sink into himself and topple sideways off the chair. We're all in for it, cried Villon, swallowing his mirth. It's a hanging job for every man jack of us that's here, not to speak of those who aren't. He made a shocking gesture in the air with his raised right hand and put out his tongue and threw his head on one side so as to counterfeit the appearance of one who has been hanged. Well, then... He pocketed his share of the spoil and executed a shuffle with his feet as if to restore the circulation. Tabary was the last to help himself. Oh, he made a dash at the money and retired to the other end of the apartment. Montigny stuck Tevenant upright in the chair ooh, and drew out the dagger which was followed by a jet of blood. You fellows had better be moving, he said, as he wiped the blade on his victim's doublet. I think we had, returned Villon with a gulp. Damn his fat head, 
he broke out. It sticks in my throat like phlegm. What right has a man to have red hair when he's dead? And he fell all of a heap again upon the stool and fairly covered his face with his hands. Montigny and Dom Nicholas laughed aloud, even Tabaree feebly chiming in. Oh, you cry, baby, said the monk. I always said he was a woman, added Montigny with a sneer. Oh, sit up, can't you? He went on, giving another shake to the murdered body. Tread out that fire, Nick. But Nick was better employed. He was quietly taking Villon's purse as the poet sat limp and trembling on the stool where he had been making a ballade not three minutes before. Montigny and Tabary dumbly demanded a share of the booty, which the monk silently promised as he passed the little bag into the bosom of his gown. In many ways, an artistic nature unfits a man for practical existence. No sooner had the theft been accomplished than Villon shook himself, jumped to his feet, and began helping to scatter and extinguish the embers. Meanwhile, Montigny opened the door and cautiously peered into the street. The coast was clear. There was no meddlesome patrol in sight. Still, it was judged wiser to slip out severally. And as Villon was himself in a hurry to escape from the neighborhood of the dead, Tevenin, and the rest were in a still greater hurry to get rid of him before he should discover the loss of his money, he was the first, by general consent, to issue forth into the street. The wind had triumphed and swept all the clouds from heaven. Only a few vapors, as thin as moonlight, fleeted rapidly across the stars. It was bitter cold. And by a common optical effect, things seemed almost more definite than in the broadest daylight. The sleeping city was absolutely still. A company of white hoods, a field full of little alps, below the twinkling stars. Villon cursed his fortune. Would it were still snowing. Now, wherever he went, he left an indelible trail behind him on the glittering streets. Wherever he went, he was still tethered to the house by the cemetery of Saint-Jean. Wherever he went, he must weave with his own plodding feet, the rope that bound him to the crime and would bind him to the gallows. The leer of the dead man came back to him with new significance. He snapped his fingers as if to pluck up his own spirits and choosing a street at random, stepped boldly forward in the snow. Two things preoccupied him as he went. The aspect of the gallows at Montfaucon and this bright, windy phase of the night's existence, for one. 
and for another the look of the dead man with his bald head and garland of red curls both struck cold upon his heart and he kept quickening his pace as if he could escape from unpleasant thoughts by mere fleetness of foot sometimes he looked back over his shoulder with a sudden nervous jerk but he was the only moving thing in the white streets except when the wind swooped round a corner and threw up the snow which was beginning to freeze in spouts of glittering dust suddenly he saw a long way before him a black clump and a couple of lanterns the clump was in motion and the lanterns swung as though carried by men walking oh it was a patrol and though it was merely crossing his line of march he judged it wiser to get out of eyeshot as speedily as he could he was not in the humor to be challenged and he was conscious of making a very conspicuous mark upon the snow. Just on his left hand there stood a great hotel with some turrets and a large porch before the door. It was half ruinous, he remembered, and had long stood empty. And so he made three steps of it and jumped into the shelter of the porch. Well, it was pretty dark inside after the glimmer of the snowy streets and he was groping forward with outspread hands when, oh, he stumbled over some substance which offered an indescribable mixture of resistances, hard and soft, firm and loose. Oh, his heart gave a leap and he sprang two steps back and stared dreadfully at the obstacle. And that's where we'll stop for now. Good night.